of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, open your Bibles up to John chapter 2. And we're going to look at again this evening the story of the wedding at Cana. And we have been looking at this uh, for the last few nights. And uh, it's been really, really fun, at least for me. I don't know about you. I take it it's been fun for you as well. And uh, we have uh, become more and more familiar with this passage, but I would like to read it again with you this evening if I could. And uh, I'm reading out of the New King James Version. And uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through uh, 11 is a story of the wedding at Cana. And I want to read that for you. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, dear woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 to 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not realize where it had come from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom aside. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have had too much to drink, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. Isn't that a neat story? Uh, we've been looking at this passage for the last couple of evenings. This evening, I would like to look with you uh, at the end of this passage, which actually comes in verse 11, and I saved this for last, reading this last. Verse 11 says this, This, the beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Um, this one, uh, this, this passage right here, marks the very beginning of what John refers to as Jesus' signs calls them signs. Um, You should understand that throughout the gospel, according to John, uh, he has an an incredible one-tracked mind type of focus in this gospel. In fact, uh, you come into John chapter 20, verse 31, and he tells you why he's writing. He comes toward the end of his gospel, and he comes in uh, in chapter 20, and towards the end of that chapter, and he kind of takes a break, and he says, here's what I'm talking about. He goes, these things are written. In other words, hey, why I'm writing these things. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing, you can have life in His name. That's why I'm writing. There's no other, there's no other reason. There's no other reason is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's why I'm writing. And so everything that's going on in this gospel, everything that's going on here is a focus on Jesus Himself. Everything is. Um, for instance, uh, you find this in relationship to certain characters. In the gospel, in other gospels, it's not that they have a focus. I guess uh, that's not on Jesus, but John almost uh, painstakingly makes sure that everything points to Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. For instance, in the gospel according to John, John the Baptist is not called John the Baptist. That's not his role in this gospel. Does he baptize? Well, yeah, he baptizes. Uh, Was his ministry, did it involve baptism? Well, yeah, it involved baptism. But is he called John the Baptist in this gospel? No, he's not. And uh, his title is given for the first time back in John uh, 1 at 6, I think it is. And it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came as a witness 
to bear witness of the light, comma, that all through him might believe. So in other words, John's identity in this gospel is not baptizing. In fact, the baptism of Jesus isn't even recorded in this gospel. It's the only gospel where it's not recorded. And, uh, the ministry of Jesus starts after the baptism. And so you never hear about it. It's just assumed. So in this gospel, John's identity is not Baptist. His identity is witnesser. Which what is a witnesser? His whole identity is summed up in pointing to Jesus. I find that interesting. Everything points to Jesus. And so what you have in this gospel, beginning at chapter 2, is a series of these signs which are focused in on Jesus. Now, these seven signs, and I, I got them written down here for you. Uh, the seven signs are, turns water into wine, which is the passage we're looking at. Uh, he heals a noble son over at the end of chapter 4. Uh, he heals a lame man at the pool of Bethesda which is at the beginning of chapter 5. He feeds the 5,000 in chapter 6, walks on water right after the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 at the end of chapter 6. He heals a man, uh, man that was blind from birth in chapter 9, and then he raises, raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, the middle to the end of that chapter. And so those are the seven signs. But John is different uh, in his gospel in that he doesn't call these miracles miracles. He calls them signs. And he does this because the emphasis here uh, on, on, these, on these events are not on the wow of what, what's going on. They weren't miracles in terms of drawing some applause from you. Uh, when we read about the changing of the water into wine, you see John doesn't want you to, to respond like, wow, did you see that? That was neat. Wow. Can you do it again? Wow, that's pretty neat. Do it. Wow, do something over here. That's not the deal. The, the, the whole focus wasn't on the wow of what was going on. It was behind the significance of what was taking place. In other words, it was a sign. It was a sign. It gave information. It was, it was something significant that's taking place here in this passage. I want to talk to you about tonight. Uh, talk to you about that tonight. In looking at this passage, there are some certain props uh, that are given. This is a sign. In other words, there's something significant going on here. Uh, the, the water that was turned into wine wasn't just done so uh, for any. Uh, it wasn't just done so uh, on a whim. It wasn't just done so uh, just at a, an ordinary type of deal that goes on. It was significant what went on. There was a sign. There was meaning behind it, and you can understand that meaning by looking at so, uh, what I've been calling s sort of props. In the text, there are certain things in the text that will give meaning to, to what, what this sign is. Now, the first one is the whole deal with wine. Now, you're 21st century Westerners. No Jews in here this evening, right? You Jewish? I didn't think so. No Jews in here this evening. Um, no Eastern descent here this evening. Safe to say? Sure. And so, and obviously, there's no one here 2,000 years old, right? 80, I think, is the oldest. That's right. And so, no one really is going to get to grasp, uh, without investigation, what we're talking about here in terms of wine. In our day and, a, uh, in our day and age, wine is, is, is really an opposite, uh, definitely not the same thing that it was in this day and age. Wine in this day and age, we're looking at back in the text here, in their day and age, was a symbol, uh, was a symbol of fruitfulness. It was a symbol of God's blessing. Uh, it was common, ordinary, average, everyday um, 
material that was used in not only the ordinary circumstances of life, but is actually commanded for the Israelites to use in their worship. Did you know that? At the, uh, it's true, in the, in the Last Supper scene, or in the, not the Last Supper, but in the Passover scene, you had to drink wine at particular times, three particular times, during the feast, during the celebration. And so it was, even, it was prescribed by the, by the priest to use in the temple as drink offerings, that sort of thing. It was, it was a commodity during their day that symbolized the blessings of God. Now, the wine was, uh, of course, used by Jesus because it was such an ordinary commodity. It was used by Jesus in several one of the miracles. He always talked about, of course, uh, he was the, uh, his father was the gardener. He was the vine. We are the branches. And he constantly uses this in his parables. Why? Well, because they were familiar with it. They had vineyards. It was that kind of stuff. So the, 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 the vine was not only a symbol, uh, a, a, a national symbol of the people of Israel, it was an ordinary, average, everyday commodity among them. So that's one of the most important symbols you're going to find in here. But also what's important is the, is, is the, is the stone water pots in which Jesus kind of incorporated for the miracle. Here's how it goes. Here's the story. You have Jesus who shows up to this wedding, of course, and you have mom who comes up to Jesus and she says they're out of wine. And Jesus seems to very, be very standoffish about it. Uh, he says, dear woman, why do you involve me? Why do you involve me in your plan? Hey, my hour has not yet come. And we understood that last night as being, I move and I respond when God speaks. And he hasn't spoken yet. I care, but hey, my hour has not yet come. But mother doesn't hear him. And uh, she turns to the servants that she's gathered, and there's a number of them, and they probably... Now, the issue was, is they, they were out of wine. What, that was the issue. The issue that, that was that they were out of wine, so they probably had these wine containers. And, of course, or these little, uh, these little wine skins. That's probably what they had. And uh, Jesus turns over, and he sees these, these servants that have been turned over to him. And he's going to address this issue of wine, as we know the story. But he does not use, doesn't implore the, the wine skins. He doesn't say, hey, fill these wineskins with water. He doesn't do that. In fact, they were made for that. But it's almost like, put these things down. And he, look over here and fill these over here, these stone water jars. Hey, fill these things with water. But they just weren't any stone water jars. The text says, uh, now there were set there six water pots of stone. But John doesn't leave it there. He adds to tell us what kind of stone water pots they are, according to the manner of purification of the Jews. In other words, they just weren't any stone. They just weren't any stone pots. They just weren't something from the kitchen that hadn't be standing aside. They just weren't something setting out there for the food or whatever. These things were were set for the purpose of ceremonial washing. In other words, uh, throughout the uh, throughout the old covenant, you have certain practices that the people of God had to abide by, and one of those was that they had to remain ceremonially ceremonially clean and. Throughout the normal, average circumstances of their day, a, a, a Jew, an Israelite, might become unclean. So what would happen is they would come over to these, these ceremonial washing pots. Uh, they might have to wear a special dress, not sure. But they would come over with a towel, of course, there. And they would go through this ceremonial procedure of becoming clean again. They would become clean. And so these things were used to fulfill. Hear this. They were used to fulfill the old covenant, which was set up by God. 
And so what Jesus does is he looks to these guys, he looks to these, these servants, and he says, listen, fill these up with water. And of course, they're thinking, uh, okay, fill these up with water. Uh, good thinking, Jesus. Hey, they're almost out. We want to make sure that we can keep the law. That's Jesus. Always keep, always obeying God. Good thinking, Jesus. And so they go over, grab these buckets, and they fill these things up with water, which is fine. And then they get back, and Jesus turns to one of the servants, and he says, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, to the master of the banquet. And Naturally, they're thinking, uh, okay, uh, of course, uh, he's probably ceremonially unclean. Jesus, good thinking, wants to make sure he's ceremonially clean. So one of the servants goes over, takes out some of the water, draws some of the water in a bucket. It probably didn't have a ladle in it because it was water. They just filled it up. And they walk up to the master of the banquet. He's standing there right beside the master of the banquet. And, of course, uh, uh, he's got a towel probably draped over his arm. The master of the banquet turns beside him and looks at him like, what do you want? Looks down in the bucket and sees wine. And he goes, oh, thought we were out of wine. And the servant looks puzzled, looks down in the bucket. His eyes get real big and he goes, I got water. And of course we know the story. The master of the banquet dips into the wine and it goes on and he goes over and chastises the groom and all that. Now, the ramifications of this, hear this, this is really neat. The big deal to this is what you have now is you have six stone water jars, six stone water pots used for ceremonial washing, used to keep the old covenant that are now filled with wine. What does that mean? Well, somewhere during the feast, what you're going to have is you're going to have somebody, some guy, who's going to become ceremonially unclean. And so what is he going to do? Well, he's going to, go be, he's going to go wash. And he's going to walk up and he's going to go to the pots. And of course, he's going to take off his outer garment probably. He's going to grab a towel, wrap it around his waist maybe. He's going to take one, put it over his arm. He's going to stand there, maybe says a prayer, and reach down in. And right before he touches, he goes, what in the world? These are all filled with wine. And he probably turns around and goes, okay, very funny. Who's pulling the old wine in the water pots routine again? Did someone pull a prank? These are supposed to be... what? And this guy who's ceremonially unclean is unable unable to fulfill the old old covenant requirements to become clean. Yeah, I know. Isn't that something? (laughs) But you see, that was huge. That was huge. But it shouldn't surprise you Shouldn't surprise you because Jesus was always doing stuff like this. For instance, in this same book, I won't even pick stuff that's in other books, and there's tons of stuff like this. Matthew and Mark and Luke record more than John does. But just a couple chapters later, in chapter 5, listen to this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep uh, gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethsaida, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of six people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well, and whatever disease he had was gone. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he, had, uh, that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? And of course, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. 
But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. Wow. 38 years. Now that's older than me. That's old. That's a long time. He shows up. This guy's waiting there beside this pool. He's been there for a long time. He's got this terrible paralysis disease. And every time, every time the waters are stirred and he rushes in, someone gets in before him. You know how pushy people get. We're, of course, in our day and age, we have the Walmarts, which is a symbol of pushy. And, of course, Jesus, Jesus approaches this guy and says, listen to me. He says, listen to me. Do you want to be made well? And I said, well, sure I do. Sure, I want to be made. But every time I try, someone rushes in front of me. You know how it is, Jesus. And they rush in front of me and I can't get it done. And Jesus says, hey, rise up, take up your bed and get out of here. Walk. And he's healed. He's healed. Which isn't a big deal until you get to the next sentence. The end of verse 9, it says, And that day was the Sabbath. Was the Sabbath. Which was a no-no. You see, the Pharisees were always, always getting on Jesus for this. Same book. Flip over with me a couple more chapters to chapter 9. Probably the most uh, distinguishing, phenomenal miracle that Jesus did. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi teaching session here. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with his saliva. Hmm. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, that's really neat. And of course, he runs around. It's a wonderful story. But you go down a few verses and it says, verse 13, uh, what you've had is you've had a few people that are, hey, they don't believe it's him. Well, some believe it's him. And everyone's wondering who this guy is. Is it the real guy? Is it an imposter? Hey, where'd the other guy go? Is he healed? Was he really from birth? Was he faking it? What's the story here? And so to settle this issue, they bring them before the leaders of Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees. Verse 13. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I can see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees says, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. You see, Jesus was always, this is, this is wonderful. Jesus was always in the hot water because he never, ever kept the Sabbath. He was constantly doing stuff like this. He was doing these phenomenal miracles. He was doing these interesting things. But what happens in all of these is that Jesus was constantly doing things that were shutting down, that were breaking the old covenant system. Constantly doing this. All of his miracles. There's there's another one in one of the other gospels that was also on the Sabbath. The Pharisees approach Jesus. They've got this man whose hand was all shriveled. And they come up to Jesus and say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, hey man, You've got an ox, right? Yeah, I've seen it outside your place. If that thing fell into a ditch, would you pull it out on the Sabbath? Well, sure we would. 
And is it wrong to heal the whole man on a Sabbath? And the guy stretched out his hand, and he could heal. And they were irate with him. Now, the passage we're in is the, is the changing the water into wine. And he fills these ceremonial washing jars, which is stopping, stay with me, stopping or shutting down the old covenant. And what this is, this is a sign. This is a sign that the old covenant, a sign of God's working, that the old covenant was ceasing. The old way that God was relating with his people, it was a sign that the old covenant was stopping and that a whole new covenant was being established in Christ Jesus. And there was a whole new way in which God was going to relate to his people. How how is God going to relate to his people, you ask? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because you come to the end of chapter 11, and this is what it says. This, the beginning of his signs... Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his, God's, manifested his glory. And his disciples put their faith in him. And so what you have in this is in this awesome sign, this moving and acting and working of God, is you have that God's glory is shown. God's glory is shown in this scene. God's glory. If you do a study... And this is so wonderful. If you would do a study of God's glory uh, throughout the Old Testament, what you would find is that God's glory is always limited to His presence. And there's a separateness. There's a separateness from God and us. Uh, there's a holiness. There's this an untouchable. There's this respect. It's, it's glory is significant. You just don't throw around the term glory. God's glory just doesn't hover down and you walk by it. Oh, hey, God's glory. Not that kind of thing. It was a, it was a distinct. It was a separate. It was a holy. It was a, it was a big deal. In fact, Moses could not stare steadily in the face of God and see his glory. He couldn't do it. And so God had to walk by holding his hand over Moses' face, lifting his hand up so he could only see the backside of the glory. Couldn't see the whole thing. When the, there was another time, of course, Moses, at the beginning of his life, walks into the presence of God's glory and has to take off his sandals because it was holy ground. One of my favorite stories of God's glory and the separateness of God was in the story when, um, you know this, David, he goes out and he, he conquers this country and brings back the ark. And God's blessing, of course, is on David. And he has this ark set on this donkey that's coming into Jerusalem. And there's a guy behind it and his name is Uzzah. How'd you like to have a name like Uzzah? Okay. Anyway, uh, Uzzah is following this donkey. And what happens is the donkey stumbles. And the ark tips a little bit sideways. And hear this. Out of love, out of devotion, out of respect, you have Uzzah who jumps forward to steady the ark. He, lo- he doesn't want it to fall. He cares. He's compassionate. He's worshiping God. And he steadies the ark. He touches the ark to push it back up on the donkey. And what happens to Uzzah? He dies. He's killed. And David responds very much the way I do. He doesn't understand. He's even upset, mad. And so what does he do? He leaves the ark outside of the city, doesn't he? He says, hey, how, how can I have a relationship? I can't, I mean, he, he's looking at his, his buddy over there. Who's he wasn't doing anything bad. He loved God. But it was this separateness, this glory. And when they built the temple, so you've got to see this now. When you built the temple, there was this so, so much of a, a distinction between, you couldn't, just, you couldn't just walk into that presence. You just couldn't uh, kind of hang in that. For when they built the temple, you, you've probably heard stories of the temple before. They had the outer courts where they had all this, this uh, opportunity to come and buy lambs and change your coins and all kinds of, of stuff out there, dealings. 
But when you came in the temple, you came into what's called the holy place. It was the holy place of God. No women were allowed in there. Uh, No animals were allowed in there unless they were being sacrificed. Uh, No Gentiles were allowed in there. This was for the people of God. It was called the holy place. And you can only go back in so far. And then, and there was some, and you're a select amount of people. You just couldn't walk into the holy place and hang out in there type of thing. I mean, priests were in there. It was performing the duties. But then you came to the back of the holy place where this huge veil was, this curtain, which was like six to eight inches thick. Some, Some say 12 inches thick. It was huge, wasn't it, Pastor? It was huge. And behind that was the... Holy of holies. Now that's the really holy place. And no one went back there except for one man once a year. And he was appointed by all the other priests. He was the high priest for that year. And he would go back there once a year where the covenant was. And he would offer the sacrifices before God for all the nation. And once a year. And true story. You can find it in the word. That when he went back there, he would tie a rope around his waist. So that when he went back there, if he did something wrong and killed over dead, I'm not going back there to get him. We'll just pull him right out of there. That's really how it worked. That's the truth. That's that's how separate. That's how that's how apart from. That's how that's how holy. That's that's the glory we're talking about here. This this unapproachable. This this tied to religious and and you've got to do it just just the way that God wants you to. There's no slack on this kind of thing. There's there's procedure that has to be done. There's this is what we're talking about. That God's it's the covenant type of stuff. That's the old covenant. And when Jesus comes, every one of his signs signs, which means just more than miracles. He didn't want you to look at the guy who was born blind and go, wow, that was phenomenal. I wonder what else he can do. Kind of like a David Copperfield type of thing. Whoa. I wonder if he can make a building disappear. Can he make the temple disappear? Is there mirrors involved? Not that kind of stuff. He wasn't interested in that. You see, there was significance and meaning behind it. And what the meaning was is that that way that God related to his people, folks, the way that God relates to us, that's not the way it is anymore. And these were signs that God was moving and relating in a brand new way. How's he relating? His glory was associated, hear this, not with the religious temple things of life. What were they, what were they associated with? Wine. It's associated with some probably low class. They were in Galilee. That's not where the high society people lived. That isn't the Hollywood of their day. You know, that's the, so that's, that's the country. They had the southern accent. They listened to country western music down there in Galilee. That's where they lived. This was the... These were an ordinary average from Cana. From Cana. Right down the road from Nazareth. They ran out of wine. They were so poor. These weren't high class. And what does God associate? Does God come in and His glory is it associated with some with some relic? Was is it what is associated with some worship practice? No, it wasn't. What was it associated with? The ordinary, average, common, everyday things of their life. And what you have in this passage is a sign that where God moves and acts in your life today. You hear me on this? Where God moves and acts and works in your life today, where God wants to be in your life today is church. That's where he wants to be. Yeah, see, this passage talks about Jesus being a servant, and he wants to meet my need because that's who he is, and it's his nature. And, of course, he doesn't meet his need according to any old way. It's according to God's plan, that God has a plan for my life, and he's moving and acting. And where does he want to meet that need? 
In my devotional life, yeah, every morning for five minutes, that's what it is. No. Where does he want to meet my need? Sunday school. That's where it is. It's Sunday school. That's right. He's a big Sunday school pusher. That's what it... No, no, not Sunday school. Where does he want to meet my need? Praying before every meal. That's it, isn't it? No. Where does he want to meet your need? Where does he want to be involved in your life? In the ordinary, common, average, everyday things of your life. One of the things I learned very quickly as a young Christian, and I found Jesus for the first time in 1995. That's when I was saved. And one of the first things that I learned was, this is in his house. Oh, we call it God's house, and we've got this steeple on the front, and we drive by, oh, there's God's house. I guess I can understand that. But you see, I've got this crazy notion that I don't come Sunday morning and sit here and go, hey, hey, Jesus. Well, some type of week that I've had, I just got to tell you about it. And you wouldn't believe this and that and this. Yeah, you probably heard about it. It was just terrible. And yada, yada, yada. And okay, great service today. And I'll see you Wednesday. That's, that's, not, that's not Christianity. You know that, right? Of course you know that. That this isn't God's house. What's God's house? That somehow... Now, when I leave here, when I leave here tonight, and I go back there and I sit in front of the TV and I watch another Indiana Jones movie, he's sitting there right there involved in the midst of that with me. Don't you understand that? Sure we do. And he's involved in the Walmart shopping days of my life. When I go through the big, when I go through the, the Burger King drive-thru, and when I, when I go down, when I stop at the flying J's of my life, he's involved in the ordinary, average, everyday low That's where he wanted to be. You see, the whole covenant, the whole covenant was all about faith in Jesus. It was all about God being our God and He being our people. And that's bigger than just, oh, church, yeah, yeah. It's bigger than church. It's bigger than just religious things. It's bigger than just songbook stuff. It's bigger than just Christian CDs. He's so much bigger than that. Hey, where's God want to be involved in my life? Well, I think He really wants me to come to Sunday night church. That's what He's been after me about. Come on. Where does he want to be involved in your life? Hunting. He really does. He wants to be involved in math class with you. You see, he is broken out. In fact, what's so wonderful about this, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus died on the cross, what was ripped into? The veil of the temple, man. From top to bottom. Can you imagine the high priest back there? Oh, no. And that symbolized that God was out of there. He wasn't cooped up behind some curtain anymore. Where is he at? Man, that's so annoying. It really is. Because there's some, there's some security in knowing that Jesus is here. You ever argue in the morning before church? You ever have those Sunday morning arguments? Well, I took out the trash yesterday. And there's these bickerings and frustrations. And What if he's there? What if he's poking his nose into every area, every day, every joke we listen to, every TV show we watch, Every magazine that we let our eyes stick on as we walk by. Every, every, every television show that we pause on. 
every song that we listen, every date we go on, teenager, Jesus is smack dab right there in the midst of it. That's the new covenant. That's the new covenant. There was this prophet by the name of Jeremiah. Wish I had a name like that. And I don't know if I can find it off offhand for you. Probably can't. But he talks about a new covenant coming. I think it's Jeremiah 31. It's got a brand new Bible, so I haven't marked this one up yet. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the old covenant that I made with their fathers in that day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel at those days. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor and say, everyone know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Mm. No more of this stuff of, hey, I want to you know, come and I'll teach you about him. He's back in there. He can't see him. But I'll... No more of that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't know how you apply this to your life. I hear a lot of, I hear not a lot. I hear a few people talk about things that I used to talk about. I hear people say, well, I don't bug God with the little things in my life. He's got enough stuff. I just, when I have the big problems, that when I, that's when I involve him. Who's heard that? I don't involve him with the little peddly things. <laughs> he wants to be involved with the little peddly things. You see, I used to think, now you can call me crazy, but I used to think that Jesus didn't care about the, the normal, average, everyday things of my life. He was concerned about the spiritual things in my life. But I'm not so sure about that. I think Jesus is concerned about what you're concerned about. As ridiculous as it may seem, I bet you that Jesus is concerned with bad hair days. I really believe He is. Girls, when you get up and you just can't do a thing with your hair. I I really believe He's concerned with that. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not trying to be funny. I really think He is. I really believe that. I really believe that He's concerned about fitting in. I believe he's concerned about feelings hurt. I believe he's, he's concerned with being made fun of. I think he's concerned with everything that concerns you. He is smack dab feeling that emotion and he's there going, I understand. I believe that. And I don't know what perception you have of him. But my Jesus and my God, which is so unbelievable... He knows the hairs on my head. He's so intimately involved in my life. And I invite Him in the midst of everything that I do. And He walks with me and He talks with me. Do you know Him like that? Because He's not a God who wants to be left here on Sunday and once in a while when you drive by the church you wave at Him as He peeks out the window. That's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. He's the one that's out of the temple, that's out of the religious things of our life, and He's into the everyday, He's into the the Wednesday night Scrabble games 
we have as we watch Jeopardy. He's into those kinds of things. He really is. Father, we love you this evening. I readily admit, Lord, that I don't really understand you being the God of this world, the God of this universe, almighty, all-powerful, always been, always will be, the author and creator of all things. Now you are somehow given over to meet my need waiting on the edge of every word that I say. You are listening so closely to me. You pay so close of attention to me that you know the word that I'm going to speak before it even comes out of my mouth. It's like your whole existence is wrapped up into me. Uh, How much do you love me? Oh, well, you sit up on this throne and when I come and call to you, you take a little time and make an appointment for me and give me a little extra strength. And No, that's not it. How much do you love me? You've invested your life. You've invested your future. You've invested your son in me. And you hang on every word that I say. You wait for me to even acknowledge your presence in my life. I'm so self-centered I realize that I'm so uncaring. I'm so stuck on me. I'm so unappreciative of all that you're doing in my life. I'm so not like you. I praise your name this evening for all that you're doing. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to open my eyes to your activity in my life. Help this calloused heart. Teach me your ways. Wake me up. Shock me in the midst of my day that I might see your hand at work in my life and praise you for it. You are not the God of church, of Sunday school, of hanging out in the choir loft Monday through Saturday till we get back here on Sunday. Although you are involved in the midst of our worship and Sunday school and Bible study, and I understand that, but you're involved in so much more. We are your house says the Hebrew writer. Open our eyes. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Appreciate you being here tonight. I'll let you...